from Acts 17, verse 1 to 10, which can be found on page 785 of your pew Bibles. Acts 17. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out of the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. This is the word of the Lord. I think it's fair to say that for all of us, sometimes it's embarrassing to be a Christian. I don't know what it is that grips you or causes you problems with the people you work with or that you socialize with or within your families, but there's any number of things that can cause us embarrassment as Christians. For some people, and particularly given our culture's opposition to it, it's particularly this truth claim that there is only one God and that we worship that God. Uh, you know, the idea that all the other gods are not gods can be very offensive to our culture, and so sometimes it's really awkward to be teaching this or affirming this. For some, its Christian sexual standards seem so hard, first of all, or silly culturally, that it can be embarrassing to be considered a prude. Finances, you know, biblical standards of finances are really countercultural in a capitalistic society. But maybe we're not quite so committed to those as we are to truth standards or, or sexuality standards. So maybe that don't cause us quite so much embarrassment. Though it could if we, if the word got out. Or maybe this notion of loving your enemies. I mean, if we were able to do it, maybe that would cause us some embarrassment. Some of these things our culture will commend, some of them it opposes. But many of them can be causes of embarrassment. My current for- cause of embarrassment is Christian engagement in politics. I don't know if you've read the news this last week, but some members of the Republican Party, some presidential candidates are trying to get support from some prominent Christians. And our culture is not so good, the media is not so good at differentiating different types of people who claim to be Christians. So Marco Rubio recently was endorsed 
by a prominent theologian whose books we sometimes use in this church. And Marco, Marco Rubio may be a perfectly good candidate, but it's a little embarrassing that this, well, first of all, I don't always agree with this theologian anyway. I think sometimes his positions are embarrassing on themselves. But when he gets engaged in politics, oh, let me give you an example. My son's an environmentalist, so I have a kind of personal commitment to this. But this particular theologian denies global warming. Or if it is occurring, it's not due to human beings. Or at least he did until recently. And you, and you get, you know, Christian theologians, they're not scientists, Christian theologians disputing global warming, it's a little embarrassing. At least if you're indoctrinated by this 97% of scientists who affirm it, including my son. So you got, you know, this theologian endorsing Marco Rubio, and, and I'm not sure I, we, we want to tie the gospel to a candidate anyway. And then you've got another, uh, Ted Cruz, right? Did you see the media this week? Ted Cruz with... Uh, uh, what do you call it? Camouflage? Not ca well, dressed in camouflage, a face paint and shotgun went out duck hunting because he wanted the endorsement of some uh, cable TV star who claims to be evangelical and shoots ducks. And the TV star of Phil Robertson said, my qualifications for president of the United States are rather narrow, he admits. Is the candidate godly? Does he or she love us? I don't know who us is, maybe conservative Christians? Or, or the country, I don't know. Can he or she do the job? And finally, would they kill a duck and put him in a pot and make a good duck gumbo? So Ted Cruz is willing to shoot ducks and eat them. And so this candidate, uh, you know, th that can't, while it's for entertainment value, I mean, in the, I mean, Phil Robertson's got a TV show that he's trying to promote. And Ted Cruz has an election he's trying to run. These things can be kind of embarrassing. So whether it be our sexual standards or our political standards, our financial standards, our truth standards, there's a lot about being a Christian that's potentially embarrassing because it puts us out of step with our culture. And we can sing songs like this morning about, I believe, and we're surrounded by other people who sing these things and believe, and the worship team, I agree, the, the, the band, the, the music is great, and it's uplifting and encouraging, and so we can affirm this here and forget out there. But when we leave, and we're not surrounded by support system and uplifting music, and you know, the, we're surrounded by a world that says, how can you be so arrogant or so prudish or so thrifty or so political, it can get really embarrassing. Well, the Thessalonians had grounds to be embarrassed. Our embarrassment can be both in God and in our leaders, and the Thessalonians had reason for embarrassment, both because of God and because of their leaders, or something stronger than embarrassment. But what we'll see in the book of First Thessalonians is that they were tempted, or at least the Apostle Paul feared that they would be tempted, to desert God and to desert him, or to desert him, one or the other. Maybe they'll stay with God and desert Paul, or maybe they'll desert both God and Paul, because the culture opposes their views. Just like we may be tempted to desert God or our 
leaders, our church, when we're out of step with our culture. So turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. The scripture reading was in Acts 17 because that provides necessary background. But what we want to look at this morning is 1 Thessalonians. And uh, the background comes for Acts 17. In Acts 17, you have the reason why the Thessalonians are going to be embarrassed, about both about God and about Paul, or, or why they're going to want to desert both God and Paul. You see what happens in Acts chapter 17 is that Paul comes into Thessalonica and he teaches in the synagogue and then the gospel spreads among the Jews and among Greeks that, that worship uh, Jehovah loosely. And then the Jews who are jealous of Paul, Orthodox Jews who are jealous of Paul, go into the marketplace and stir up the marketplace and say, look, this new guy coming in and he's preaching a, a, a political subversion. He's preaching anti-imperial doctrine. He's teaching some other king. So they go and get the people from the city of Thessalonica, the pagans, the Greeks and the Romans, they get them to attack Paul and the Christians. And what does Paul do, you see? They don't find Paul, so they drag Jason in. And they, has, they harass Jason. And then Paul at night, Paul and his team, they sneak out of town at night. Do you see the problem that's going to pose? Because Paul left, but Jason owns this home. He can't leave. And the guys that were harassing, wanted to harass Paul, can't get Paul. They're going to harass Jason and the other Christians. So suddenly, this gospel, which seemed to be uplifting and you know, promises great grace and hope for the future, suddenly bring, makes their lives very difficult. And the apostle Paul isn't there to help them. And there's something else that's going on with them. In the ancient world, what Paul did as a missionary, we call him a missionary. In the ancient world, a lot of people did this and they weren't missionaries. They didn't distinguish between religion and philosophy. You know, we have this wall between religion and philosophy. They didn't do that. You had traveling philosophers. You know, you all know, in school, you know Socrates and you know Plato. You know the cynics. There was a lot of traveling philosophers in the ancient world. They come into a city, they teach, they get some followers, they teach in public first, free teaching in public, then they conjure up some interest, then they'd go off to a hall, they'd rent a hall, they'd charge admission, or they'd have other ways of soliciting funds, and they would, they would teach their new doctrine. And you have this all over the Greco-Roman world. So when Paul comes into town and he teaches about this new god, they think, well, Paul's like a traveling philosopher. And there's a lot of aspersions cast on the character of traveling philosophers because they had to live. So they would charge for the teaching one way or another. They would charge. And so often they were accused of being uh, teaching error, of using trickery, of using flattery, of being greedy. Aspersions were cast on any of these traveling philosophers. So, so here comes Paul into town. He does what traveling philosophers do. He teaches. Then trouble comes, and he runs out of town. And it'd be very easy to think, Paul, he's just like one of those other guys. You know, he just came here to get money. Uh, he just came here to get some, you know, trick us and, to, and flatter us into supporting him. And then, then he gets some money, or, or, and then he leaves. But when trouble comes, so they're embarrassed by Paul. They're embarrassed by the doctrines, and they're embarrassed by the apostle. 
by the person, the leader. Now, in order to understand what's going on in First Thessalonians, there's one more detail I have to give you here. You know, Paul starts, you turn with me to First Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul starts out this way, First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. We always thank God for all of you. We always thank God. We can overread this and misread it. What's happening is this. You know how it is when you write a letter? How do you begin every letter? Let's say you got the, 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 the you know, the, 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 maybe you're applying for a job if you still write letters and not electronically. You know, you got the, the person you're applying to, his position, the company. Oh, the date first, right? And then the company information. And then you start the letter, dear so-and-so. Now, you see, if you didn't know American writing, letter writing conventions, you might think, this guy's very friendly. Maybe a little too friendly. Maybe I don't want to hire them. It was just the way we start letters. We don't mean it. So if you have a girlfriend that you're writing to, we don't write letters to girlfriends anymore, but if you had a girlfriend you were writing a letter to, you wouldn't say, dear, would you? You'd say, well, if you were sloppy, you'd say, dearest. If you were fresh dating. Or if you were dating a long time, you might just say, dude. But... <laughs> you know, the conventions. And in the ancient world, we still have letters from the ancient world, not just Paul's. We have, Egypt was dry climate. So people threw out their, threw out their letters, papyrus in, in scrap heaps, in trash dumps in Egypt, and archaeologists have uncovered them because the climate was so dry. We still have ancient letters. And the ancient letters started with, we give thanks to the gods. It was just a standard way to start a letter. So the point of this is not that Paul gives thanks for the Thessalonians. The point is to look at the content of it. In order to figure out what's really going on here, you've got to look at the content of what he's saying. And the final point I would make is that some of you who are familiar with Chinese culture, particularly elite Chinese culture, I don't necessarily mean contemporary mainland culture, but traditional Chinese culture, will know that often enough in Chinese culture, if you want to say something painful, you have to say it indirectly. You don't want to say it directly, at least in polite conversation. It's just like this for Americans, right? What do we care about? You know, if you want to tell somebody, I, when I was in seminary, we had a guy in the hall who suffered from body odor. I mean, he's, his room always stunk. And this was 30 years ago, but we're trying to think, how do we tell this guy that his room stinks, that his clothes stink, that he stinks? How do you tell somebody that? You know, you, you got to hint about it. You got to be indirect about it. You know, maybe once you get married and you've been married 15, 20 years, you married somebody that stinks, somebody, at some point you've got to break down and say, hey, you stink, take a shower. <laughs> I don't know. Is the guy next to you stink? But, but, <laughs> sorry, sorry, buddy. But, um, you know, you've got to be indirect about these things. And first century, was it, they were indirect, um, painful things or polite things. So you've got to re infer what's going on in some of what's, in order to understand what the real point is. But the historical background will give us some help. Here's the situation. Here's the scenario. Paul comes into town, stays three weeks, maybe a little longer. He preaches a message that gets everybody in trouble. He leaves town. Their trouble doesn't go away. The trouble gets worse. 
And Paul's nowhere to be found. He doesn't come back. The Thessalonians, do they stay with God when it's this much trouble? What do they think about the Apostle Paul? You know, if he really cared about us, would he be here? So what you've got going on in First Thessalonians is Paul's explanation or justification why they should stay faithful to Christ and why they should stay faithful to him. They should stay faithful to Christ despite persecution. They should stay faithful to him even though he left. They should still think highly of him even though he's not there to suffer with them, even though he brought all this trouble on them. Now, here's the uh, thing about this Thanksgiving. While Paul starts off with, we always thank God. Normally, in the first century letter, a, a secular letter would be much shorter than Paul's, you know, just a random business letter. The Thanksgiving would be one line. Paul's letters, the Thanksgivings are normally six or eight lines. This Thanksgiving, the only one in the New Testament, goes on for two and a half chapters. There's something going on here, more than a simple, hey, I really like you, I'm glad that for the time we spent together. Two and a half chapters, he has to talk about how thankful he is for them. And the reason he does so is not to express gratitude for them so much. This is indirect communication. The two and a half chapters are spent doing two things. Don't turn away from God even though life is hard. Don't think poorly of me even though I'm not there with you. It's the only thing he says for two and a half chapters. So turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I'll take you through so much, as much of it as we have time for. I'll take you through those sections. Why they should persevere with God and with Paul. Not just with God, but also with Paul. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 2. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Why should they stay faithful to Paul? Because Paul's still faithful to them. He's grateful for them, and he prays for them all the time. We remember your, before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus. Paul commends them. Why should they stay faithful to Paul? Because Paul thinks highly of them. We know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he's chosen you. Why should they stay faithful to God? Because God chose them. Because our gospel came to you. Why should they stay faithful to Paul? Because they owe their salvation to him. Yes, he ran away. Yes, he's not there now. But without him, they would never have met God. Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power and with the Holy Spirit and, and with deep conviction. Why should they stay faithful to Paul? Because it's not just that Paul preached the gospel. It's that God worked through Paul. They should stay faithful to Paul because God thinks highly of Paul. Through Paul's preaching came God's power, came the Holy Spirit, came deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. Why should they stay faithful to Paul? Because of the way Paul lived. 
You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering. You see, the suffering is an issue here, right? This is why they might go away from Paul or go away from God. is because of the severe suffering. Why should they stay with God and stay with Paul? You became imitators. When the Thessalonians suffered, this was derivative. They weren't initiating anything. You became imitators of us. Paul's not there. He's not suffering with them. But Paul says, when you suffer, you're only doing what we do. We suffered. Hey, don't disrespect us because we're not there suffering with you because we're somewhere else suffering. We suffered before we came to you. We suffered after we came to you. We suffered while we were with you. And when we suffer, it's no, we're not heroes. We're only doing what Jesus did. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now, if the Lord suffered, certainly you have to suffer. And if the Lord suffered and we had to suffer, and now you follow us, we, we, there's nothing unique about what you're enduring. Be faithful to us because we're faithful to God. And God's been faithful to us. The Lord's been faithful to us. He suffered for us. We suffer for him. You welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering for the joy given by the Spirit, Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Why should you stay faithful to Paul? Because your reputation depends on it. You already have suffered, and you have this reputation in the, all the surrounding countryside. The whole region, the whole state, the whole section of the country knows about your character. Stay faithful. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Why should they stay faithful to God? Because of their reputation. Why should they stay faithful to Paul? Because Paul acknowledges Paul, their reputation. Paul respects them of what they've already done. We don't need to say anything about you and your reception of the gospel. For they themselves, people in these other cities we go to, they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. Ah. Why should they stay faithful to God? Because, again, their reputation depends. Everybody knows. Why should they stay faithful to Paul? Because everybody knows what? Not just about the reputation, about the reception they gave the gospel, but the reception they gave Paul. Another reminder that their faith is possible only because of him. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Why should they stay faithful to God? Because he's the true God, the living and true God, the only living and true God. Their other gods were idols. The gods worshipped by their opponents who are attacking them, they're idols. They're not true and living gods. Why should they stay faithful to God? Because his son is going to come from heaven. Why should they stay faithful to, to God? Because God has demonstrated all of this in history through raising Jesus from the dead. Why should they stay faithful to God? Because when Christ returns from heaven, the wrath of God comes. But Jesus rescues those who are faithful to him. You see, all of this, it's not about, it starts with we thank God because that was convention. It's not about thanks. Really, it's about commending them for their faith so that they'll continue in their faith. Commending them so they know Paul cares about them so that they'll continue in their reception to Paul. It's really about stay faithful to God. Stay faithful to us. 
Now in chapter 2, Paul continues even more strongly to personalize it. Because he still talks about the past. But now he's not talking about their past and how they came to faith and slipping in a little bit about him. You know, you, you came to faith and you've stood with God through persecution. You've been great and faithful, but all of this was only possible through us. That's chapter 1. But now in chapter 2, he puts himself front and center. In chapter 1, predominantly, he praised them and said, well, all of this was possible because of us. Implicitly praised himself. Now, he directly praises himself. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you would not, was not without results. You know that we're effective. You shouldn't reject us. You know we're effective preachers and missionaries. But you know more than that, something much more important than that. Verse 2. We had previously suffered and been mistreated outrageously in Philippi. But with the help of God, we dared to tell you the gospel in the face of strong opposition. Yeah, the gospel's brought you opposition. Yeah, you have to suffer. But don't hold that against us. We had to suffer before we came to you. If we'd walked away from suffering, we would never have reached you. You have to suffer. Don't walk away. Our appeal does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. You see, these are the common accusations against all these itinerant philosophers. Oh, they're just peddling ideas. They're using trickery, flattery. Paul says, look, we look like them. Our behavior looks like theirs. We come into town, we preach the gospel, we leave, go on to another town. But he says, we're not like them. We're not teaching error. We don't have impure motives. We're not trying to trick you. We speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. Then he goes on in verse 7. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Not only did we preach, we worked day and night. Only slaves in the first century, only slaves and poor people worked. Elite sat around discussing philosophy and politics. Only slaves and poor people worked. And he said, we preach the gospel, and yet we worked with our hands. You remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day so that we wouldn't be a burden to you. Why should they stay faithful to Paul? Because of his, the depth of his commitment and sacrifice and faithfulness to them. You are witnesses, and so is God. Did you see what Paul's doing? You remember, you saw, you remember, but now he's saying, you saw only what we let you see. You saw only the public stuff. But God, he sees everything. You saw. You are witnesses. And so is God. How holy and righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. Not only did we deal with you like a mother with her child, we dealt with you like a father with his child, encouraging and comforting. And so in verse 13, he again repeats, we give thanks. But it's still not so much about give thanks. Verse 14, you became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. How did they become imitators of the Jewish churches? They suffered. Paul's telling them, why shouldn't, you, why shouldn't suffering turn you away from God? Because God's people always suffer. Jesus suffered. The churches in Jerusalem, where the church started, they suffered. Me as a missionary, he says, I suffer. So you have to suffer. Well, yeah, of course you have to suffer. And he goes on to tell them, I told you when I was with you that you were going to suffer. Why shouldn't opposition turn you away from faith? It's part of the course. 
And then in chapter 217, I'll skip over some of it, but in chapter 217 and 310, now he talks about the present. He talked about his, their past when he went to Thessalonica and their response. He talked about his past when he went to Thessalonica and their response. And now he talks about the present. Yeah, I'm not with you now still. I'm not with you. But it's not by choice. Look at the emotion he pours out in verse 17. We were orphaned. He said, I'm like your father. I'm, I'm like your mother. And now, it's like I'm an orphan. Because we separated you from a short time. Out of intense longing, we made every effort to see you. We're trying to get there. But Satan stops us. It's not persecution that stops us. It's Satan that stops us. And so, we, we can't get there. And so, in chapter 3, verse 1, we thought it best that we'd be left by ourselves. Catch that. We would rather be left alone in the midst of an adversarial environment facing persecution. We were left alone. We, we sent Timothy away. He's our brother. He's our co-worker. We depend on him. We sent him away to look after you to make sure that you weren't going to be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for this. Why shouldn't they give up God or Paul? Because Paul didn't give them up. And because suffering and opposition is just part of being a Christian. It just comes in our culture. It comes in their culture. It comes in our culture. Following God entails certain unique truth commitments. It entails certain financial commitments. It entails certain lifestyle commitments. It entails certain ways that we're going to spend our entire lives. And because God is not match up with the world, there's distinctions here, then some of the ways that God calls us to live don't match up with the world. And that's odd. And it seems kind of bizarre. And so people react against it. For us, much milder than for them, but still for us. And Paul says, this is what we're destined for. And then he adds, and it turned out that way, just as you well know. You see the irony here. Paul's kind of a little dig here. Don't get upset with me about persecution. First of all, I told you it was going to happen, and now, well, it happened. I told you, and it came to pass. So what's the complaint? You know, I was honest, and, and I, I was truthful. So verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7. Brothers and sisters. He was their father. He was their mother. He was their orphan. He was their brother and sister. In all our distress and persecution, we're encouraged about you because of your faith. Now we really live since you're standing firm in the Lord. This is what matters to us. Not the persecution but that you stand firm in the Lord. What does all of this mean to us and the kinds of embarrassments we face? Notice, Paul was telling them two things. Despite opposition from their culture, Paul was saying two things they should do. Stay faithful to God and stay faithful to him, respectful of him. I haven't checked through the statistics 
and they're generalized statistics. The number is pretty average, so you don't know whether it was estimated or guesstimated. Let's not just think about us for a moment. Let's think about this whole church, you know. We have uh, uh, more than half of our church comprised of first-generation converts from the mainland. Now, a lot of them have migrated and will stay here, and, and I'm not talking about them now. But some of them, particularly some of the more recent ones, come for a couple of years as visiting scholars, come to work for a little while, and then go back. And many of them are quite a steady stream come to faith. You know, you look at any baptism, we come to any baptism here, maybe 20 or 30 people are going to be getting baptized. Maybe one of them's from Taiwan. On a good day, one or two of them is from uh, English ministry, on a, on a good baptism. I mean, it was a bunch of youth. I don't mean to discount that. But if you look at the adults who are getting baptized, virtually everybody is from mainland. And a lot of them are going back. Now, there is a ministry that's, that estimates, guesstimates, or says, anyway, that 75% of those who go back leave the faith or just... Faith, they leave the church or just faith no longer. They just don't practice the faith anymore. 75%. So obviously we need to pray. But clearly, First Thessalonians speaks directly to them in a way that we need to appreciate because our lives staying here are so much easier. Maybe you've read news about Cuba opening up now. Cuba opening up to, you know, the U.S. and, and Cuba are uh, reestablishing their relationship. And that is leading to greater freedom for Christians in Cuba because they've been persecuted for a long time. But I read an interview in Christianity Today magazine, an evangelical magazine, a Christian magazine, about the church in Cuba. And about Cuban church leaders are very kind of worried that as Cuba opens up to trade with the West that Western American Christians are going to be flooding in, and they're worried that the church, which has been robust and strong through opposition, you know, built their muscle through conflict and opposition and harassment and imprisonment, that the church was not going to become Americanized. And what they mean by that is weak and flabby and no resistance. But we should pray for the church in Cuba. But we should think about, you know, what does it say about the American church? That, comfort, you know, our lives, we have there's some challenge, there's some opposition, sometimes the faith is mocked. Um, but overall, things are really pretty easy here. What does it say about our responsibilities before Christ? Now let's talk a little bit about us, not just about people who have a life harder than ours. Think of it, okay, so let's, if you don't mind me talking about your life, you're in high school, you're in a church, you've got a supportive family, you've got a supportive community, you've got friends who are in Christian fellowship, then you go off to college and suddenly all these uh, supports are taken away. Sociology will tell you that alternative worldviews are supported by alternative communities. And when you and need to be supported by alternative communities, and when you lose that alternative community, it's very easy to lose the alternative worldview. 
But it doesn't apply just to high schoolers going off to college. It applies to all of us. You know, we're in a world where the media has different values. Now, some of those things they, about us, they will admire where we're different, and some of them they'll mock. You know, uh, Christian sexual standards, this is crazy bad, right, in our culture standards. And it's easy for us to adopt cultural standards. Christian financial standards, if we live by them, those are crazy good, so we'll get applauded, and it's easier to follow them even though we're maybe capitalist and we don't entirely do that. But loving your enemies. You know, anytime somebody gets shot in, the, in Boston and, and crippled and then forgives the, the uh, shooter in court, that's cr considered crazy good. So some of the Christian values are crazy good. Others are crazy bad. When we say that there is one God and call all people to worship him, even though sensible secular philosophers will tell us not all religions are the same, our culture wants to believe they're all the same, and that's crazy bad. And we can give up a lot of this stuff because it's crazy bad. Or our culture says it's crazy bad. But if, you know, if Jesus suffered physical persecution, Paul says, as a missionary, he has to suffer physical persecution. And so he says, his converts, they have to be willing to suffer physical persecution. What would Paul say to us about, you know, the mockery, the little kind of, you really believe that stuff? Or, you know, we stand there where they make fun of other people who believe these things that they know and we just keep quiet about it? You know, of course we're going to be out of step with our culture. Because this is in the nature of God and the gospel. But, so there's this huge similarity. Opposition. Our opposition is so minor, most of us, compared to what our brothers from China face or our brothers from Cuba. Uh, our opposition is so minor that there's, a, there's a, certainly a continuity here that Paul is saying to us, we can't turn away from the gospel just because of opposition. And yet there is a huge discontinuity here. Paul didn't simply say, don't turn away from God. Paul said, don't turn away from me. And here's a huge discontinuity. Why can't they turn away from Paul? Because of his proven character. Because of the consistency of his testimony and his life. Because of what he endured for the sake of the gospel. Because of his suffering. Because of his commitment to truth. Because of his commitment to them. Can we legitimately be embarrassed by and excuse ourselves from affiliation with a public Christian who joins a, in a, a website that, in order to have affairs on his wife? We don't have to respect that. We don't have to take ownership of that. We don't have to commend that. Do we have to embrace Christian leaders who deny climate change? We don't have to embrace that. Do we have to embrace or accept or, or restore pastors who have affairs or steal money from a church? We don't have to do that. Paul says, don't betray God because he's been faithful to you. Don't betray me because I've been faithful to you. Certainly God is still faithful to us. 
But at the same time, we have every right to say to those who would represent us publicly, who would stand up for us and speak for us publicly, we have every right to say to them, if you want our respect, then you have to do it on the same terms as Paul did, by the consistency of your life. Today, God says to us, don't turn from me in the midst of difficulty or opposition from your culture. But he says to leaders that represent our community, demonstrate your character if you want to be followed by those you lead. Let's pray together. Father, we do think of those who've passed through the doors of this church, have come to faith, and go back to China and face this challenge. We think of ourselves who've passed through the doors of this church and have come to faith and face challenges still, even if much lesser. That we might hear your word through Paul, your word through his life, your word through his writings, that we might be faithful to you always, and that we might be faithful to those leaders who are faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Please rise.